It was a traumatic shock for me. I studied in India for five years and then I came to the UAE. So literally it was having to study right from scratch again. You know, half of the things they put on television are not true. It doesn't happen in real life. The hustle culture in Dubai, I think that they glorify like sleeping less time. I have seen that and I do tend to agree with you. I can only say for myself when I say I run three businesses today, but I make sure I sleep for seven to eight hours. So I prioritize my health and my sanity over everything else. So I decided to form what I called Suits and Advice. If you're gonna ask me why I called it Suits and Advisors, it's simply because I like the TV series Suits. There is not one day, however, I wish I gave up my law firm. Welcome to the Young Leader Podcast. We'll be showcasing the very best business owners and thought leaders within the YP Club. We'll be delving deep into strategies on how to scale your business, the things they don't tell you about their industries, and the struggles of scaling a business right here in the Middle East. Welcome back to another podcast of the Young Leader episodes. Today, I'm sat down with founding member, key partner, and Young Leader ambassador, Bianca Gracias. Bianca moved to Dubai 20 years ago after finishing her education in legal or law when she was studying in India. Bianca is now the managing partner of the company we all know and love, which is Crimson Legal. She's also a partner for an M&A advisory firm, Suits Advisors, and she's just founded her own tech business, which basically automates the KYC process, which can be very frustrating for business owners when they're onboarding new customers. Bianca and I discuss a number of different topics, but the ones that really stuck out to me is the scaling of your business, particularly with a lot of regulation and red tape around an industry like legal and how to make the right hires and making sure that the people that you have inside the business live and breathe your brand. I'm sure you'll take a lot of nuggets and wisdom from this episode. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Bianca. Welcome to the Young Leader Podcast. Morning, Cameron. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited awesome. for today. I, um, I would like to think I know you quite well. We've worked together for the best part of a year, I think. You've been involved. You're a founding member of the community. You're now a young leader ambassador as well. I would say your business, which we'll get onto, Crimson Legal, has been very pivotal, not in terms of just driving the community forward, but your advice. Um, so for people that don't actually know who you are, one thing that I wanted to get into immediately was your journey. What brought you to Dubai? What was kind of the driving factor that brought you here? That's a very interesting question. I don't think I get asked that a lot, but then I think I'm very private as well with my personal life and I don't like to talk about my history, my background. I just talk about the future, I guess, or the present. So why I came to Dubai? Well, to start with, that was 20 years ago, almost two decades now that I've been in Dubai. I came to Dubai because I was running away, predominantly from my family. Again, another thing that I don't like to talk about much. So I come from a very um, staunch religious family. They're very Roman Catholic, and they're very strict in principle, in their actions, in their beliefs, in their followings. And it, at some point it became quite stifling to follow rules and regulations. Although ironically, I turned out to be a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, yeah, how did that happen? But okay, I'll let you carry on. <laughs> so then I decided I, I wanted to find the one country in the world where I had no family. 
And that just happened to be the Emirate of Dubai. So I moved to Dubai because that was the one city in the world where I had absolutely no family to follow me or check up on me. And that's the simple reason why I moved here. So where were you raised? So I was, I was born in India, then I was raised in Bahrain. I have um, dual ethnicity, if you will. My late father was Portuguese and my mother is Indian, but I have a very mixed background. So I, I decided to move here because it, there are, there's multicultural aspects here that I feel very at home with. It's interesting right now that as you think about Dubai, everybody's thinking, well, they want to move here, but 20 years ago, from what I understand, it wasn't booming, right? There wasn't that much going on. So what was it that, apart from the fact that there wasn't family here, was there anything in your mind that there was opportunity? It was anything, or was it just solely focused on the fact that this is somewhere you know that you'd be left alone and there would nobody telling you what to do? Well, predominantly it was that, but then Dubai is also, or was at the time, similar to Bahrain, where I grew up. And it was a big multicultural pot of different cultures. And that's where I feel most at home where there are different cultures. I didn't want to move to the UK or to Portugal. I wanted to be somewhere where I could be myself. And I think Dubai allows you to be that. And besides that, it's also safe. Why would I want to go anywhere else? Yeah, interesting. And that was one of the things I wrote this week. I found my is just that this place really allows you to facilitate the real version of you. And I think that, you know, if I compare it to the UK, mention the UK, and sometimes, uh, I find it's very suppressive, but here people think it's a suppressive community in the city, but I, I actually find it quite contrary, where it allows you to really become the true version of yourself. Did you find that on your journey when you came in? I did, actually. I, I just found every day I was becoming a better version of myself because there's so much opportunity you can create, you can find, you can hop on to, and I think opportunity presented itself every day to me. My life here in the past 20 years has been spectacular. So when you moved 20 years ago, what were you, were you studying at that time? What were you doing? What was the intention? Well, I just finished my law degree uh, and my passport was being held hostage by, by my mom. She didn't want me to leave and go anywhere else. So literally I had to steal my passport out from under her and just fly out. And the only person I knew here was a friend of mine. So she said, come to Dubai, it's great. It's such a nice, it's not such a nice city. It's, it's safe and you'll get plenty of jobs as a lawyer. And I just finished my law degree at the time. I didn't know where to go and what to do. I just decided to come here on a whim and to escape, essentially, as I said. When you decided to study law, was that from a, because I know I'm passionate right about law and I would see it quite often. But when you were studying, was that something that your parents wanted them to do or was that something that you genuinely felt you had a career in? Well, I think my father brainwashed me growing up as a child. He always wanted to be a lawyer uh, and he never could. He ended up being a trader. And I think it, he tried to live his dream out through me. So growing up, I feel like I was brainwashed. But then I'm so passionate about it. So I think the brainwashing worked. And when you arrived, what was your journey in terms of, I know you've had some, you worked for some big companies here in UAE, right? So can you go through what that journey was like when you worked with someone and the kind of key things that you've learned in this market, particularly when you work for these companies? So I worked, my first role was with Imar Properties as in-house legal counsel. And back in 2004, Imar were just developing their legal team. They only had a legal director on board and they were just burgeoning at the time. I applied through a recruiter 
and I got called in for about a couple of interviews. That was, I think, about 28 days after I had just landed in Dubai. And the, the market was, I think I got lucky back then. It was quite hot, but real estate was just starting to pick up back then. And then after I joined Imar Properties, everything just took off because real estate started booming. The market then in the next couple of years started booming because real estate was booming. And a lot of tourists were coming in. Dubai started becoming the next hot destination. Now all the developments that you see on Sheikh Zayed Road back then when I came, there was nothing. There was one hard rock cafe opposite Imar Business Park at the time and Trade Center. And in between there was just desert. There was no Al Barsha Heights. There was nothing in between. And what did you learn on your journey with Ma? How many years were you then for? I was with them for two intense years. I used to work 14 to 16 hour days. It was such an intense but fulfilling journey. I learned so much, like everything I possibly could cram in my little head. I think I crammed at the time, right from, because when I worked the litigation with the, sorry, with the legal department at Imar, when I worked, when I worked with the legal department at Imar, we were just two of us in the department at the time, the legal director and myself. So we had to do everything from trying to negotiate settlements, rental disputes, bounce checks, reviewing and drafting contracts. We pretty much did everything. But in a normal private practice law firm, you'd segregate these out to different lawyers based on their specialization. So you could say I had a crash course in the laws of UAE, the practices and the customs in those two years. Um, one thing that I always try to reflect on, and I'm curious to see your opinion in this trial is how well did uni actually prepare you for the real life as you just studied? And um, I find that for me, when I was studying accounting and then I went to actually do accounting, although conceptual and I knew a lot of your ideas, it was very different to what I actually expected. What was that like to you having just come from uni, you come to the region where I would imagine the legal frameworks and stuff was quite uh, rough and ready. You kind of just have to make it up on the wind. I guess it's built out a lot since then, right? What was that like coming from well, it was a complete trauma, I think. It was a traumatic shock for me because I never expected to study law in a common law jurisdiction. I studied in India for five years and then I came to the UAE, which is a civil law jurisdiction with completely different laws and a very different legal system. So literally, it was having to study the legal system or a legal system right from scratch again. But it was so much easier back then because back then, 20 years back, UAE had far lesser laws than it did now, than it does now. And um, I was just speaking to my friend yesterday, and you mentioned you know the long working hours, which I think a lot of people in white collar roles would have endured at the start of their career. And he was asking me you know for advice and stuff on how to manage it and how I managed it. Sorry, um, how how did you manage those long days? If if there's anybody, we have a lot of young professionals in the community that watch the podcast. If they're going through something similar and they may be working these long hours, what's your advice to them and how did you how did you manage it? Well, I don't I wouldn't recommend it. I know back then I did it, but I wouldn't recommend it. Even with my team now, I don't recommend them working long hours because especially when you're putting in mental effort into something, you need that brain space to unwind, to relax, to bring that mental balance within yourself. I recommend working efficiently now rather than working hard. 
because that is quite important, giving your 100% rather than giving 80% or 70%. Back then I had an incident, again, something that I've not really talked about, when I was working one day and I just collapsed in the office because I was working for such long hours, not focused on eating well, drinking water even. I just collapsed in the office in the evening one day and I had to be rushed to the hospital. And that's not advisable or <laughs> recommended to anybody. When you were with a mom. Yes, because I was working such long hours and not focusing on my health or, or nutrition. That, that was not even a priority for me. So how do you, because it's weird, I've kind of gone in cycles in my life. I've gone through the same phase as what you've done, very similar story. Um, and then really on top of my fitness, but now, right now, managing that and the nutritionist stuff can be quite difficult. So is there anything in your mind or has it just come down to discipline, just like the true desire and the, and the understanding that that is going to be so beneficial for you? Have your meals at the right time, try and have three meals a day, go to bed at the right time. Is that how you approach it? Whether you're an entrepreneur or just a professional, I think it is quite important to prioritize you. Of course, discipline is necessary, but the one thing that we need as human beings is to prioritize our health whether it's our physical health, our emotional health, or our mental health. It's only when we are functioning well on all these three levels, can we also function well in whatever we do as a work or you know lifestyle. I completely agree. I, I've always put health first, and I actually, you know the whoop bands, right? A lot of yeah. senior people are using whoop bands now, like double watch. And I read this statistic from whoop, which I found so interesting, because imagine the data that they've got. I, I'd love to get really deep into it, but, um, they said that if you have six hours consecutively, hours of sleep or a long time, actually affects your decision making by like 40%. So that two hour difference actually affects your ability to make the right and informed decisions. And those decision makings are kind of those macro level decisions that are quite big and impact your business in a significant way or your personal life. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and you will know this having been here as well, like the hustle culture in Dubai, especially among like a, a group of people that are entrepreneurs, working a full-time job and doing their own business on the side. I think that they glorify like sleeping less time. I, I, have, you, have you seen that, I would say? I have seen that and I do tend to agree with you. I can only say for myself when I say I run three businesses today, but I make sure I sleep for seven to eight hours a night. I eat well and I make sure I drink plenty of water. So I prioritize my health and my sanity over everything else. That's it for me as well. If members ask me, you must be sleeping five hours a night. I, I feel ashamed to tell them I sleep eight hours. I'm like, no, I'm sleeping eight hours, honestly. I'm like, oh. and, I, and I think there's an interesting point here around, again, reflecting a conversation on a friend yesterday. He, he's, um, he's working for someone and he wants uh, to, work for some, to work for himself. I did say sometimes I think certain people do glorify the, the route to entrepreneurship because it is very challenging those first few months and few years in certain cases where people think I have to sleep five hours to make this a success. I don't think working hard or spending sleepless nights is the solution. If you sleep well, you can get those ideas that you need to get naturally. Your, your creativity spikes, but you need those hours of rest and sleep you need the right nutrition. I, I definitely believe in working smart, not working hard. So when you um, finished with Amar, what was the journey then? And was, 
I think you worked for someone for some years before actually establishing Crimson Legal, right? And was it always Crimson Legal? Good question. I, I did work with um, Algorare Investment in their holding company, managing all their subsidiaries. I also worked with Hadif and Partners, which is a local law firm. So I did work for a fair few number of years, garnering experience in private practice and in-house before I decided to form what I called back then Suits and Advisors. So what was it called? Suits and Advisors. Suits and Advisors, okay. So if you're going to ask me why I called it Suits and Advisors or why such a ridiculous name, it's simply because I like the TV series Suits. <laughs> I absolutely love Suits as well. It's amazing. It's, it's based on lawyers and I loved it so much back then. And I thought to myself, I really need to create a legal practice because I was finding a dearth in finding good lawyers who did not offer me designer price tags, who were just transparent with their billing structure and with their services. So I said to myself, I can't find this anywhere. Why don't I just create it myself? So I went off to one of the free zones and I created Suits and Advisors and I thought I'm going to offer legal services to the SME and startup community with no designer price tag. I'm going, to be, I'm going to try and be as honest as I can in providing those services, not try and inflate time or charge them any surprise costs in any way. And that's simply why I started Suits and Advisors. Today, of course, it is rebranded and we've licensed in ADGM and we've now called ourselves Crimson Legal. But I started this journey of working with SMEs, startups, a homegrown community, Back in 2014. 2014, okay. I was just going to say before we get onto your business, I think it's really interesting. The and I was saying this to a friend as well. The implications of something like suits and how it makes you think differently. Like it actually breeds. Like, I want to be a lawyer. After seeing Harvey Specter and I was doing accounting, I was like, I think I should probably go into law actually. <laughs> yeah. But the impact that these people have and Harvey yeah. particularly, I don't know how you feel about it, but I think he's one of the coolest guys ever. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you know the legal practice and understand it well, you know half of the things they put on television are not true. It doesn't happen <laughs> in real life, but it does have a certain level of impact on you. Yeah, I think in some of the scenes where Harvey just goes into the bathroom and punches someone falling in the face. <laughs> probably yeah, no, it doesn't happen in real life. <laughs> yeah, understood. So when you say designer price tags, I think you just mean that everybody was inflating their costs, right? And there was nobody in the market that was really just catering to the SMEs where... As a startup, as we all know, and there'll be a lot of people listening that are on that kind of startup journey, um, cash isn't very plentiful. There's not a load of cash in legal services. In my opinion, having worked with you and we're working on a few things now is absolutely critical because spending X amount on getting the wording right and actually protecting yourself and the business can pay massive dividends in the future. Um, well, how do you how do you see the market now, particularly around legal? And I guess not to really say that the competitors aren't as good as Crimson Legal, but how have you seen the market evolve in the space? Well, I have seen the legal community evolve, as in they are becoming more conscientious with the fees that they're providing, and they're not just going ahead and offering templates to um, to a client. I think it's really unfair if a client comes to you for a legal contract and then you turn around, charge them maybe $10,000 and give them a template that you've had hidden somewhere in one of your precedence folder. That's something for me, not ethical and not right. And it's not fair to you because you as an entrepreneur, let's take YP Club, for example. There are so many communities out there, but you know the way you run your business is entirely different from any other entrepreneurial community out there. 
why then should me as your legal advisor be unfair in just offering you a template and charging you X amount of money? For that reason, we set ourselves apart in trying to understand what your needs are for your business. And whilst we may or may not use a precedent, we try and customize it for your business. And I think the legal community, there are lawyers out there as well who have evolved, who have changed, and they try not to use templates anymore or just give out templates to clients. And I think that has been a big change besides the fixed fee offering, of course. Yeah, the, the fixed fee offering is that particular to this region because when I worked at, back home, we always used to do the hourly rate. And then coming here, it was fixed fee. And then I just realized how much pressure that put on the team, which is crazy. And it's so competitive here. And I feel something that I felt, and that I'll take your opinion as well. And if it's similar legal, there was a lot of people just undercutting our prices constantly. And so for us to compete, we had to come bring our prices down into a level which would just didn't make sense. And then obviously the staff work, these long hours that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, it can be a hit and a miss. And you just have to weigh the pros and cons in each case. But to the extent you can agree a fixed scope of work with your service provider, but in a manner that does not disadvantage yourself or the service provider, I think you can agree to fixed fees. Fixed fees does not mean you work overtime. Fixed fees means you agree on a fixed scope of work where both of you are not disadvantaged severely. Yeah, makes sense. And when I was at um, Charger Entrepreneur Festival, I dropped into your session really quickly. And you spoke about something which really was interesting to me in terms of the hiring process, right? And it's something that I think is so important to people that you bring into your business. And one of the things that you said right in the beginning that you were struggling to hire the right people, that you said ultimately the common denominator was yourself. How did you go around hiring in the beginning? And how did you have the self-awareness to reflect and say, actually, I was the problem? Because I think a lot of business owners, they go, oh, just fire them, just fire them. What's that journey like to come to where you are now? So initially, I didn't know as a new entrepreneur, I didn't know where to hire from how to hire, what a job description was. I don't know, I had to create things like this and give it to the recruiters. So I tried using um, common recruitment platforms. I won't say the names. I tried using recruiters. I even put up posts on LinkedIn just to see who was around. I tried asking friends or members of communities that I was part of. And I would interview everybody and anybody that came through the door. I would interview anybody. If anybody sent me a random email in my generic inbox, I'd interview them. <laughs> I don't know how you have the time for that. We put a job out there yesterday and have 40 applicants already. But that's good, right? That's really positive. But, but then again, I was interviewing everybody and anybody and everybody who said something nice to me or said something that I wanted to hear, I'd give them a job offer. I had no experience at all. I think even hiring is a skill. Like you need to learn that skill. And that comes with experience and also intuition, right? I didn't trust my intuition at the time. I was so desperate to get people on board back when I started out. That's changed. That's long since changed. Yeah, and I think one of the things that you have that's amazing now, and you've definitely gone around cultivating a really good team that I feel they live and breathe the brand, right? And I think they're very loyal to you and they understand that what you can provide and the journey that they can go on with you is amazing because of how skilled you are. They're very well connected, the types of projects that you're involved with. But was it difficult in the beginning when you had this high churn rate? How did that make you feel as an entrepreneur? I went through a lot of ups and downs. I, I had to go through several coaching sessions myself. 
So I'm a big believer of spirituality. So I used to do a lot of meditation, self-reflection. I went for coaching sessions. I, I did a lot of healing on myself to understand where these problems were coming from and why I was coming across these issues. And that's, that's when I realized I was compromising. I was compromising a lot on my values. I was compromising a lot on my beliefs, on my own standards. And I just realized that if I stopped compromising, if I set my boundaries and what I wanted firmly, the universe, if you will, would actually respond. And when I learned to set my boundaries, that's when things changed around me. How long did it take for you to get to that stage though, in terms of when you started employing into the point where you started employing the team that you have now, how many years did it take you to actually tr understand how to set boundaries, who you're looking for, what brand values that you have and what are you looking for in your potential employees? How long was that? If you ask me in terms of time, I'm very embarrassed to say. <laughs> <Time>. <laughs> I think it took about seven, eight years. I'm very embarrassed, but it, that was my journey. You know, I own it. I can safely say it took me seven or eight years to learn. And I'm, I don't regret a minute of it because I learned so much. Yes, I took that long, but that's how much time I needed to get over my life experiences and my learnings. So I completely own that. And if you think about other entrepreneurs that might be in this step of making, of hiring the first person, and I think this is a really exciting chapter for an entrepreneur when you're like, okay, I actually need to hire somebody now. When was it to you, what kind of key triggers did you feel like, apart from just generally workload, you were like, actually, I need to hire somebody? Was there like a key thing? And if you're looking to hire someone new, what are the things in your business that you look at and say, this is indicating that I need to hire a new person? I think overflow work, when I see my team has to work over time, that's definitely a sign for me because I trust my team. I know they, when they come into work, they're 100% dedicated and they work. We work nine to five, nine to six, I'd say. We work nine to six. But if they have to stay back and work for, for days in a row, that's a sign for me. And we're running at full capacity right now, so I am looking to hire. <laughs> okay. So how do you, how do, how do you um, build your pipeline? Then? Because I know one of the things that I actually love about you is the fact that you're very present in these different communities. You're very involved and you're somebody who completely understands that what you put into something is what you get out. And I think a lot of people can aspire to the way you go around things. But are you the one that's the core focus for generating leads? Are you the one constantly out in the market winning the work? A very good question. So it's not just me. Yes, I do predominantly get most of the leads, but I do have four other partners in the business. They bring in leads as well, as well as my team. Believe it or not, my, my team are fully focused. So I'm training them to be lawyers as a whole, not just lawyers that sit behind a laptop and do work, which is what traditionally lawyers are trained to do. You only learn to bring in leads or business or speak publicly once you become partner after about 10 years. But with my team, right in their burgeoning training stages, I've pushed them out to speak in public. I've pushed them to research. I've pushed them to meet clients on their own. So they are doing a lot of things that you would see in other firms, partners doing. And that's exactly what I was referring to earlier when I was saying that they know that with you that they'll be going on this journey, right? Because I've assessed that very early on in, the, in our relationship and the, the ability for them to engage in some of these activities is something that they definitely wouldn't experience if they were working for a big corporate because I've worked with some of the biggest yeah. corporates in the world. 
And I remember some of the meetings when they asked me for my opinion. And I'm quite a confident person because I never spoke on these calls and stuff. It was very like, oh, I have to speak on this calls now. And one of the things that I really love about the, what they're doing is trusting them. I've seen them come to these sessions. They lead the session sometimes, they all speak. And then also I've been in meetings with members at different menus and I've seen them there with clients, right? And they're, they're there, they're engaged. And what a lot of people might not realize if they haven't worked for a bigger corporate is that that part of your career journey doesn't come until eight years maybe in, in the journey if you're lucky, right? So what does a, a complete lawyer look like to you then? Because you mentioned a complete lawyer. Is it all these different verticals that you're doing all of these things that a partner might be expected to do apart from obviously signing off on top level things? But Yeah, for me, a law degree would be somewhere third or fourth on my list of criteria when I look for good lawyers. Uh, my first criteria is I need somebody who's kind. And kindness is something that resonates with me immediately. It resonates to my intuition. So you need to be kind. The second criteria would be you need to have common sense. If you don't have common sense, and I do give little tasks that help me determine whether this person has common sense or not. The third criteria would be you need to have good English speaking skills, speaking and writing essentially, because English is predominantly used across the world with most of our clients or all of our clients rather. So if you can't speak good English, then it doesn't resonate very well with the brand that we are trying to build. And then I'd say the fourth criteria would be having a law degree. <laughs> Everything else I can train lawyers in. Everything else is a skill that can be learned. And when you say common sense, what kind of testing do you do around that? Is there anything specific that you do or is it on a case-by-case -case basis where you think, okay, today that this might make sense based on what you've seen from a potential candidate? I just ask them little questions, right? For example, I ask them, what is the difference between a confidentiality agreement and a non-disclosure agreement? Things that a basic lawyer at any level should know, and if they don't Correct. have the answers to that, then that's a landlord's Correct. So. And if you look at it, non-disclosure has the same meaning as confidentiality. So if a lawyer doesn't know that they're absolutely the same thing, then that is a red flag for me. In this so. Oh, when you um, when you think about your business now, and, and one thing that I'm sure that you're involved is in a load of different sectors and a load of different disciplines of law. I know predominantly you focus in, on corporate on corporate law, um, and corporate and commercial, isn't it? Yep. That's how you define it. Like, is there a specific area within the legal framework or the world of law right now, particularly in this market, which makes you most excited? Wow, there are, there are lots of things that excite me. I, I don't. I think my, I never have a dull day doing what I do. A lot of lawyer friends come to me and say, would you only review contracts and you draft contracts? Your life must be so boring. And I go, no. My life is quite exciting on any given day because it's the transactions that we get involved in. Whether you're buying a business, selling a business, getting an investment, it's, it's just a whole lot of experience and fun because every transaction is unique. So if you ask me what is the most interesting, I think my whole life is interesting for me because I'm so passionate about That's it. It's amazing so. to be sat there after so many years in the industry and just being like, this is, I love this. I think a lot of people would aspire to do that because um, I don't know if it's just me, but I feel a lot of people, I don't know, they just don't like their work. You know, it's, it's sad to me so to be able to sit with people like you and you know, a lot of the key partners, I think that we have a more gentle I think the key thing with a lot of people is they're they're they are not allowed creative expression with what they do or where they work. 
When a human being is allowed creative expression, when their opinions are valued and asked for, when they are heard, it makes one a completely different human being. And that's what I realized when I was being asked for my opinion by clients or by peers, I felt heard and valued. And that allowed for more creative expression. It's a completely different ball game. I couldn't agree more with that because that is exactly why I had to leave the corporate world. Although I actually, I really enjoyed what I did and worked with restructuring and the profiles, the kind of engagements that we were getting involved with. But it was always make sure this is presented in this, in this PowerPoint, make sure that the analysis is in Excel in this format and then present it to the client in this way. And I just felt, I, I just love to sit and think creatively. You know, one thing that you mentioned as well, which I wanted to touch on, is that when somebody works very hard for 15, 16 hour days, they're not giving their brain the time to actually switch off and think about solutions to problems. Because if you're so dialed in constantly, I personally, I find that my mind isn't thinking creatively about solutions to my problems. And then if I'm, sometimes I feel guilty if I'm just doing eight hour days, but then I can actually start to think about what's the vision for the business and how do we get there? What's the steps? You know, and a lot of that work happens. I'm in the gym, I'm going for a walk, I'm just shopping. A lot of the ideas come to and I'm not actually sat with us. That's because when you are talking or when we're actively engaged or working, your brain is in beta phase. I don't know whether you heard this concept of the uh, brain waves. So your brain is in beta, it's very active and engaged. But when you're doing something where you're relaxed, you're doing something in autopilot, that's when your brain is in alpha. And that's when you get your creative expression, your visions, your thoughts, your ideas, because your brain is relaxed. And one thing about law, and it's something that I quite like because I used to review a lot of contracts and think about all the different scenarios, is actually th people don't understand you do think creatively about solutions because actually one of the things that you're trying to do is foresee 10, 15 different scenarios and making sure that this contract fully covers it, right? And it, it is difficult in that sense to be like, these are the potential scenarios that might happen. And this is the way that the word in which is that you cover that scenario. Absolutely right. So our role is literally to forecast, to highlight the worst possible scenarios and client very many times don't like us for it because we are, all, we are out there highlighting the worst case scenarios. In the, in the best case scenarios, you're never going to have to worry. But our role is to highlight those risks and make sure we've covered those what-if scenarios in the contract. And that is, at the end of the day, an art form, I think. Yeah, having worked with you and a number of different lawyers, I definitely think when the contract comes back and then you've covered it, you're like, exactly what we were looking for. If you think about the Crimson Legal Journey today, are there any moments in your mind that, that come to mind in terms of there was a scenario you felt, okay, this is too difficult for me to continue the business. There was a situation where you felt this is incredibly challenging. And you had to go really deep inside and think, how am I as an individual, as a person leading this business, going to overcome it? And what did you learn from that, if, if any? Um, I think I'd like to say no. I've always loved what I do. I never had a doubt in my mind. And whatever whatever challenges came my way, I just thought they were in a moment of passing and that they were going to pass. I'm very optimistic. I have very strong willpower and I know I love what I do. So right from when I started Suits and Advisors to now having Crimson Legal, I don't think I've come across that bigger hurdle 
that has made me want to stop and think, am I ever going to overcome this? I don't think that's ever been a question because my, I've always been so focused on my goal. My goal is working with the SME community. My goal is working with homegrown businesses to make sure they are successful, to make sure they understand, identify risks. So my vision has always been clear, I think. And when your vision is clear, any obstacles that come on the way can be surmounted or overcome. Yeah, and I was speaking again to a friend yesterday about this and you were saying, I was giving him a synopsis of the last month in the business and kind of the roller coaster thing, you know, and he said the exact same, he was like, I don't understand how you're just so calm about it. And I, and I, I completely resonate with what you said because I know where the, I want to take the business and I know that this is just part and parcel of running the business, right? It's not going to be plain sailing. But also, if I, I'll struggle to put this into words, but I just really enjoy the journey and I feel that this is part of the story that everything that you go on through business is actually, it, it will create the business that you want and the alliance, the vision that you have. And only by managing these different situations can you really deeply embed the cultural values that you want. I think that is so important. And I look at the employees that you have now and, and how they are, as I said earlier, they live and breathe the brand, I can tell, you know, they're posting on LinkedIn. And I think Beth put a funny one on, was it with a cat, wasn't it? Yeah. I actually skimmed over it. I didn't see the cat. And I was like, oh my God, is she? I, I didn't see the cat. I was just thinking, oh, Bianca's in trouble. Bianca's in trouble. <laughs> She's taken a dispute to social media. Yeah. I love them the way that, you, because humor and stuff is a big approach that I can see that you do, right? And it's trying to have this blend between, on one side, people would have assumed that law has to be dull and boring and then you try and approach it in a certain way and said, I think it's making people feel more welcomed into the environment of law and, and anything to do with legal and to say, don't be afraid of it. And I think that's exactly what we tried to do with the YMP Club because there was such a stigma around networking for this age group. We were like, this is so beneficial for your career and your future. You should be involved, but we understand how to position it. And I think Crimson Legal is doing exactly that as well and trying to have that blend. I think we, we have a lot of fun with what we do. We have fun internally and we also have fun externally with our clients, with our peers. So I think fun also enables creative expression and that's what we want to do. So the, the way, so normal day at Crimson Legal, if you will, is full of fun. It's full of communication. It's full of creative expression and it's full of client work as well. I, I want everybody in the team, I want to create a culture within Crimson Legal, and I think every, every entrepreneur should also explore this, of having fun at work. Because when you enjoy what you do, you're truly having fun, the business flourishes naturally. It's just natural progression. And how did you get to the point where you were like, okay, I can allow them to express their creativity? Because I think a lot of people that employ people they want to see them online the whole time when there's technology now that tracks what they're doing on their laptops and stuff, which is crazy, right? Uh, and there's is a, is a guy in the community section, obviously he won't mind me saying because it is his business, right? And kind of promoting his business. But there's cameras that they put into rooms now and they track the activities of the employees. So they take facial, rec facial recognition and they say, Bianca has been at her laptop for X amount of hours today but she was also at the coffee machine for X amount of hours. So as an employer, I think there is one side, yes, you want to allow creativity to flourish, which comes with trust and really trusting and believing in your team. But then there's an also a segment of people who have to have complete oversight of their staff at all times. 
So what would you say to those individuals that might be thinking control and oversight is the best way to get the job done? It really depends what kind of business you're running. There are businesses that need that level of control and oversight, like you rightfully mentioned. But there are businesses such as ours, law firms, where you need to allow a lawyer to think, to strategize, to be with themselves in their thoughts, whether it's with a coffee machine or it's walking on the street. For us, I don't, ma I don't mind if one of my colleagues is out walking on the street or in a cafe or eating cake or doing whatever they need to do to get their thoughts moving and flowing if they have to advise a client on a matter. Because that takes a certain type of a skill. It's, it's okay if they meet up with their colleagues and have a coffee and they're discussing this matter. I allow for discussion, I allow for honest expression because for me it's very important. And yes, our kind of job or roles require a certain degree of trust. If I were to micromanage our lawyers, for example, I don't think I would get the output that I currently get when I don't micromanage them and I allow them the freedom to think, to strategize, and to express themselves. So, Irene, and what would you say is the most challenging bit about running a legal firm, particularly here in the UAE, and maybe further afield in GCC, if, if, if Crimson also dabbles in some of the other... And, the other countries here. What are some of those key challenges that you faced on your journey as the managing partner of Crimson Eagle? I think all the admin and compliance just gives me a headache. It's just so stressful, but it's something that I have to personally do and oversee myself. There's so much of compliance and paperwork, processes that goes on to onboarding every single client, making sure the firm is being run ethically, legally, in a licensed manner where our insurances are in place. It's just a lot more admin and compliance and security that you would have in a normal business. There is not one day, however, I wish I gave up my law firm to run a regular business. I run my law firm, but I'll also run the regular business. And what would you say to somebody out there who might be thinking of setting up their legal firm? Is it something that you would encourage? Um, and if what would be the points that you would discourage them on, if that makes sense? A very good question. So if anybody's out there thinking of setting up their law firm, I would say try and understand what you're going to provide the community that's going to be different. Because we're one of the oldest professions in the world. It takes time and costs a lot of money. And not to mention there's a very high compliance requirement in setting up a law firm. So you need to be prepared for six months of very serious setup work. It's a long journey, but once you're committed to it, understand what, what is your USP? What are you going to offer to the demographic that's going to be different from what already exists out there? Once that is clear in your mind, then get ready for about six months of hard work, find the right licensing authority, make sure all your ducks are in a row. Don't compromise on insurance, don't compromise on your license, and definitely don't compromise on compliance because these are what will set you apart from all the other shop shop businesses out there. And you mentioned licensing particularly. Is there any particular reason why you're an ADGM? I, I love the Emirate of Abu Dhabi and ADGM is one of the most respected authorities in the country. And Abu Dhabi is the capital, so that's why I chose Abu Dhabi. 
And it's in the English law, right? Instead of Sharia it is, law. Yeah. It is. Okay. Understood. And when you think about the future for Crimson Legal and how that's evolving, do you think, what does that look like to you? Is that scaling out the team? Is that targeting more sectors? What, what do you have in mind for Crimson? So today, um, we select the clients we work with. We get a lot of inquiries and we don't take in all the clients because we are a boutique consultancy. We do want to remain boutique. We do want to retain the option to choose and pick the clients that we work with because at the end of the day, we want to deliver quality output, but we also want to create a client base where we can thrive at our best. So I want to maintain that consistency, I think. I don't want to grow the firm to a size that it's not fun anymore to come to work and everybody is just a number. I still want to have those fun personal interactions, the great culture that we have going. So I do want to grow the firm, but not to an extent where we lose the essence of Crimson Legal. Yeah, I was listening to um, a podcast with a guy that founded um, a few companies in the UK and he managed to scale it to nine figures. And he, he was saying, it was really interesting. He was the founder, built all this team around him. And he used to love it in the beginning where everybody was just so involved with the mission. But then he would come into the office and he wouldn't recognize anyone and nobody would say hello to him because they didn't even know who he was. Even though he was the original founder and CEO, because they were blitz scaling in the beginning, people were just being onboarded, right? And not actually understanding the whole value proposition of this business. And I think that's what you're saying, right? With some businesses, they grow at such a scale, they lose sight of the core values of the business. And so I think as a founder, it's our decision to make whether we want to blitz scale and take it through the roof and get those nine figures, or we want to stay at a compact number where we live our lives on a daily basis with fun and grace. And you mentioned that you have normal businesses and not just legal ones. They're not ones that I'm actually aware of too deeply, so it would be good to... The noise of the that. Nothing. The camera's uh, hotter than... What's the time now, Maris? We've got 20 minutes. Because we're not moving, point out there's a bit turning bits. Have best me. Appreciate that. going to say a story on that, but I'll tell you. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's up? So on the face of it, I think most people will know you for being the head, the genius behind Crimson Legal. But something that you mentioned just previously is that you have other businesses as well. What, what are those businesses? So I do have another M&A consultancy where we advise on growth deals, predominantly outside the UAE. And I have another startup that's still in its nascent phases. Phase, uh, I have a startup that's still in its nascent phase. It's licensed from the DIFC under the innovation license and focuses on automating um, KYC and onboarding for non-financial business entities, which is a requirement under UAE anti-money laundering laws. I was actually going to say, how many you found a way to automate the KYC? Because I, I knew that you just said the compliance and stuff, and I know that can be so yeah. time-consuming. Yeah. So you've actually gone out and yeah. found a, a product and a solution that you Absolutely. Built. So instead of taking two days to onboard a client, if you're a non-financial business, i.e. not a bank or a financial institution, you can use our product, onboard a client, screen their name through over 3,000 international lists in the world, and onboard them based on your own risk assessment criteria in a matter of minutes. 
Is there any com- competition in that space? Or? Well, there are compet- there are competitive products out there, but they offer one, not all solutions put together. Okay. And we are going a step further and we're also getting certif- certified for GDPR and ISO to promote credibility of the platform. And if I was a user to actually engage with this product now what would that look like is that just a is it a website i would create a user and i would have my own landing page and i would upload the documentation for any potential customer and then the system would then check through all the names and verify that the passport makes sense against the name so the fun part is our our product is only web-based right now so all you need to do is create a profile as a business say you're a law firm and you create a profile as a business go into your dashboard, customize your dashboard for yourself with your logo, with a description about your business. And all you need to do to onboard a client is send them a link, which, which is customized especially for you. Yeah. All they do is click on the link, a template pops up, they populate their details in there, upload all their documents. It comes, to, you are immediately notified by email. Once you're notified by email, you can run their name in the search engine that is available on your dashboard. It's quite simple and easy. So it's only a few clicks for me then. Yeah. And once I've set this up, I would just basically put the customer's name in their email, send the email to them, they upload the documentation. And then I would just basically say, I would screen the documents, make sure I'm happy with them and then send it to be checked. Yeah, it's quite simple and easy and painless. The good part is it's painless and user-friendly. And when you say the 3000 databases, how do you have access to all of that? How does that work? So we use MemberCheck, which is um, a company listed actually on the public stock exchange in Australia. And MemberCheck has analysts that actually update these sanctions list and terrorist list on a daily basis. So we use them through API integration. And is the core focus of KYC, because I, when I worked for UiPathnon, we had a KYC team and we would just say, this is the customer, and they would come back and say, maybe in three, four days, actually, they'd come back and say, okay, it's fine to engage with this party. What actually happens on the KYC process? Are they just cross-referencing these lists? Is that predominantly what you need to do to feel comfortable that this is someone you can engage with? So what we are trying to understand when we onboard our clients is who they are, what they do, and what their source of funds is. So the core is not to engage with any client or to engage with caution with any client if the source of their funds may not be legitimate or they may be sanctioned individuals. If you want to take on board or work with a sanctioned individual, then you need to undertake your own risk assessment to see whether you are okay to take on the risk of working with that particular sanctioned individual. If I was to use the platform now, what's it called by the way? It's called Obsecchio. Okay. It's quite a tongue twister, but Obsecchio means compliance in Latin. And when is that due for launch? It's launched already. Okay, we, We've just started actively selling. Okay, when was that? Um, I think this week. This week? <laughs> oh my God, very, very current then. Very, very new. And is that um, a business that you have partners with as well? Yes, I have two partners in there. Okay, and then the M&A, is that Suits Advisors? That yes. took on that name, right? Yes. I remember. Okay, so you have Crimson Legal, which you have... Did you say four partners? Yeah. And then there's a big crossover, I assume, there with Suits Advisors in terms of like, the work because there's natural synergies between those two businesses, right? Yeah. We, we try and synergize as much as we can, provided we operate in um, jurisdictions where we can work in. That's, that's the only thing I would say. But if we don't work, say, for example, a deal is happening in Africa, we'd engage with legal counsel over there. 
And how do you find it now running three businesses? I, I guess with the suits advisors, maybe you're not as involved and the tech product, maybe you're more involved. How, how do you find the time for that as well? Because I know you're very involved with Crimson the Eagle, right? With, yeah. with what I see. I try and segment my day for all the three businesses and I try and plan my week in advance. So planning, I think, is key. If you look at my calendar, <laughs> it's a complete mess. But I try and act as organized as I possibly can with my calendar and section out time in advance. But I try and give time to everything and everybody in my life. And so if I was to look at your calendar then, would you be putting blocks to say, uh, suits advisors and that would be your two hours to pick up whatever email channels anything any work that you've accumulated and that two hours your team can see that you're you're focused there so don't invite me to any meetings yep absolutely i also put in time to remember to remind myself to celebrate people's birthdays <laughs> <laughs> so it's every, there's a block for everything in my calendar <laughs> i used to use facebook but the worst thing is now that i'm not on facebook i don't have the reminders for people's birthdays <laughs> So my friend phoned me the other day and I was just chit-chatting away 10 minutes in and he goes, you do know it's my birthday. And I was like, oh, sorry, I'm not on Facebook, so I don't have the notifications. You don't have your calendar yeah, to remind exactly. you. Yeah, I need to definitely up the level. Something um, James, our COO, has tried to implement on a, on a Friday evening is blocking out his calendar to spend time with his girlfriend. So it's like very clear that you know his intentions that evening. Do you have time in your calendar where you're like, I'm going to be just not working when I when maybe somebody might expect you to be working so actually planning your downtime is that also something that you include I try to do that but there are days when I'm just very spontaneous so there are days when I just um, decide I'm going to stop working today because my brain needs a break and I'm just going to go and get a massage for myself so I stop in the middle of the day I block my calendar I call my team and I say listen I'm going off to get a massage I'm very honest with them and I just go and do it. I don't necessarily block out time if I need to be spontaneous. Um, I try not to at least, not for personal endeavors during a working day. After working hours, yes, but during the day it would have to be spontaneous. Are you quite strict with your working day nine to six or have you found that as in your role, although that the team, you're happy for them to do that? Is that something that you've struggled with to manage those timelines for yourself? and? Do you find that you creep into the evenings quite often and the weekends and stuff? Well, I definitely creep. Into <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a founder of a business, it's you impossible. know, <laughs> you never have an off day. You know, you're always on your phone. You're always on email. But I'm very strict about nine to six. It's sacred for us. There is no negotiation. There is no, no coming late. So working hours are always respected. If you are not going to be at your desk or not going to be productive or you just want a mental day off, it's absolutely fine but there has to be communication. We need to talk about it. And something that you mentioned as well in Sharjah, the, in SAF, the Entrepreneurship Festival, is that you do one to two days in the office with your team, right? And most of it is working from home. And I'm very close to this conversation about working from home and stuff because it was so important to me in my life at one point before I went on my own because I think I read an article that IBM said that employees now have six months to relocate close to the office or they face being fired. And so I think there was this big culture around working from home and then everybody now coming into the office. Do you have a particular view on working from home? I think it depends on the kind of business you have. 
if you're running a tech business like yourself, you can afford to have a hybrid work environment. But if you're running a business like fixing cars in a garage, everybody would need to come to work. So it really depends on the type of business. For us, we run a service-based business. So the only reason we come together is just to have that day together as a team. We function perfectly well online. We have regular team meetings. So every day at nine o'clock is our team meeting. That's absolutely sacred and not negotiable. And this is something I learned from my coach, right? The one thing she said to me when I was coaching is the one thing I needed to do as a leader, not a manager, is to communicate clearly and honestly with my team and start with consistent meetings every morning. And at the end of the week, she recommended to me that I, I should have another meeting, which we do, by the way. So every Friday at four o'clock, we have another team meeting where we talk about our highs and lows for the week. We talk about our achievements and what we could have done better. It's mostly a safe space where we share our personal experiences. And that has, in fact, brought us so incredibly close as a team. It's, it's been life-changing, by the way. These morning meetings and the, and the end-of-week meeting. So, 1 9 a.m. Monday and then yeah. 1 4 p.m. Friday. Yeah. That's a ritual in Crimson. So, no, 9 a.m. every single day of the working okay. week. Okay, so what, what, what's the agenda for the 9 a.m.? What kind of things would you cover? We talk about what our plan is for the day. What clients we have, to, what client matters we have to work on, what calls we need to get on. We just summarize what the day is going to look like and how much, if we have to work late, then we talk about working late. If we need help, we ask for help. So we are constantly working with each other as a team. It's never that one, one lawyer is working only on one matter and she or he is left all by their lonesomes. So we try and work together as a team to see if anybody needs help. So planning for the day, essentially. And how long would you normally put in the diary for that? Is it 15 to 30 minutes usually? And just, yeah. just We have about 30-minute meetings. Okay. And you think that the 30 minutes just pays so much dividends for the team, the cohesion, and making sure everybody's aligned every day in terms of what they need to do? I think consistency is key. Whether you have it at 1 o'clock in the afternoon or 9 o'clock in the morning, consistency is key, and consistency is what has paid off. And I really like that suggestion of the 4 p.m. at the end of the week because one thing that between our team... There's three of us now, and sometimes everybody's just so focused on their one work stream. And then I'm like, I'm having a catch up. What we usually do is Monday morning, every Monday morning, we'll have um, probably three or four hours actually just going through just everything that's happened in the week. Whereas I actually see now the half hour is probably more productive every day, yeah. as opposed to what, and James always says this to me, is that there's so much time, but I'm like, I need to be up to date. I need to add value to whatever issue that you're having so that make sure that we're moving forward in the right direction and that we're not taking on too many risks as a business because a lot can happen in four days when somebody has ultimate creativity and autonomy over the decision making right but i do like that suggestion of the 4 p.m uh, yeah how, how long do you usually give for those sessions those are a little longer because everybody is given their own 15 minutes of fame to talk about whatever they want to talk about they don't need to talk about work but, but most of the time we do talk about work, but we also talk about our personal lives, what has been a high, what has been a low, and what we would want to do better. With It's just a safe space to share. And it's incredible when you share, when you talk and when you communicate and you see what your colleague has been up to or the challenges they faced, it brings you so much closer as a team and you begin to understand and respect your colleagues for whatever they are going through in their life or whatever they've done. And I think that's the one benefit, again, of working for, if anyone's listening and thinking of going to more like a boutique company, 
these are the things I think people should really be considering because yes, people want to, the, the name on their CV of going to the big companies, but you're not going to have like these four o'clock calls where people are going like, what was the highs and lows of your week? Because it's just not realistic. And one of the other things that I was really disappointed in, in, in my career journey, although I was very um, grateful for the projects and the things that I've been involved with are crazy. And I'm very appreciative of that. But one thing that I didn't like is the lack of coaching and the touch points and stuff throughout the journey as, as somebody junior you know, who aspired to great things. How, how do you manage that? Because you have three businesses, you have as, um, employees that I know you deeply care for and you want to see them succeed. Do you have something in place at the moment where you have these touch points with them apart from the 4 p.m.? Is there something more individual? How do you manage it? Yeah, so I do have individual meetings with each of them consistently. At least once a month, I catch up with each employee separately to understand what's going on with them and to just understand one-on-one. -on -one. Maybe there are things they don't want to share in, in the team meetings or they can't talk about. And I have a separate relationship with each of them. I try and especially make time for them so they are heard at all points in time. We also have something called a learning hour. So every month I dedicate time, either myself or one of my partners, or I bring in external speakers so they can learn something new every month. And that's not negotiable either. We do have compliance trainings because we are lawyers. We also have to constantly. Yeah. So, so almost yeah, every, it's every quarter, I think, we do an additional training on anti-money laundering laws, the regulations, the updates. So we are constantly updated and remember what's happening with, with the landscape of laws in the region. And besides that, we also keep each other updated within our own group. We have an internal group. We communicate of all the laws that are being updated. We research, we study, we have learning sessions between ourselves or discussion sessions about the laws. And one thing that I wanted to ask you, your founding member of YP Club, which was DYP when you joined, and you're heavily involved in female fusion. I touched on it earlier in terms of like your approach to networking and stuff. But what have you found to be the most successful approach to being involved in communities like Female Fusion and YP Club? It's really how you leverage it. Now, YP Club and Female Fusion are my two absolute most favorite communities that I stand behind and I can pledge my loyalty to each of these and say, these are the ones that I found to be the most productive. But at the end of the day, it's how you leverage it, how you create your relationships. Because communities are just communities if you don't know how to leverage them, right? It's all about building opportunity for yourself, creating those relationships, establishing trust with other members in the community. And I think the good thing about Female Fusion and YP Club is that they vet the members before allowing them in. So when you meet another member, you have that assurance that they are vetted, that they are quality members. And there's something about the energy also of these two communities. It's just positive and upbeat all the time. And I'd like to think it's because it's founded and managed very, very well. And that's one thing that I realized because I went to a mixer with Female Fusion. I didn't know what to expect. And, you know, I've, um, Jen was kind of a mentor for me before she, she's just too busy at the moment, but I was like, okay, I'm intrigued to see the, the way that this community is. And immediately Jen asked me to speak in front of everyone. And I was like, okay, I'm going to speak to, I think it was been like 70 very successful female entrepreneurs. But honestly, the, the key takeaway for me, was exactly that is it's that vibe, right? The vibe in the room and the way that Jen leads it and stuff like that. I think it's, 
is great. But one of the key things that you mentioned is knowing how to leverage it and how to position yourself. And I think some people we've seen previously before we brought the application process in, they didn't have the right intentions. It's not necessarily that they didn't have the right profile, it's more down to intention. And that's something that, so, well, I was going through a phase of phoning absolutely every potential member, which was time consuming, but actually very valuable because it gave me insights as the founder in terms of profiles that I was looking for. Um, but yeah, I would say going forward then, do you see yourself stepping away a bit from Crimson Legal and focusing on the other two more? Or is that, are you still very much of the frame of mind that you will manage all three in the, in the way that you have been doing? I want to continue my, my journey with my career as is because I enjoy what I'm doing. I want to be equally involved in all my three businesses. Who knows, I may have a fourth one in the future. I don't know. <laughs> I believe the world is my oyster. <laughs> you and Awana just, uh, just, just popping out businesses every week. <laughs> yeah, so I, I love what I do right now. And I believe in, you know, living a fulfilling life. And my businesses keep me fulfilled. And I just absolutely love creating value. I love creating businesses, running them, scaling them, growing them, and, and you know, earning from them. <laughs> And before we leave, what was the one thing that you'd say to somebody that's thinking of starting their own business, just generally having done these three companies, particularly with the mindset of we're here in Dubai, what is the top piece of advice that you would give them? Ironically, the top piece of advice is not going to be legal. It's going to be very practical. So there are two things I would say if you're starting out as an entrepreneur, you must have. One is a thorough business plan. Just don't compromise on it. Create a real practical business plan. And the second thing is have an executionable, that's a word, um, go-to-market strategy. Have a good go-to-market strategy. Know who you're going to sell, how you're going to sell, and what you're going to sell. These two things I think are absolutely crucial. And I see a lot of business owners launching and not having these things in place. Yeah, I think I can definitely resonate with that. A lot of companies just say, yeah, I'm just going to go on the fly and on the whim and hope that, you know, things come together. But direction is so important. You know that saying, build it and they will come? It's not true. <laughs> I was thinking that on the car journey here this morning and actually questioning it. That's so weird that you said that. Yeah. Um, but Bianca, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you.